This is the World War II Radio Podcast. A date which will live in infamy. This is London. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. Go ahead, Berlin. This is the National Broadcasting Company. Welcome to the World War II Radio Podcast. Today we have the CBS World News of the morning of January 7, 1943. It includes updates on the war from Australia, Moscow, London, Algiers, Washington, and New York. It also includes a preview of President Roosevelt's State of the Union address scheduled for later that day. We'll actually have the full address as a bonus episode posted later today. The World War II Radio Podcast is a Brick Pickle Media production. If you like the show, please leave feedback on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. And be sure to visit our website at brickpicklemedia.com slash podcast, where you can find links to past episodes and other items. So thanks for listening. Enjoy today's episode of the World War II Radio Podcast. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. CBS World News brings you the early morning reports of its correspondents at home and abroad. But first, here are the highlights at 8 a.m. Eastern Wartime, Thursday, January 7th. The Russians gained on all fronts during the night. Hitler was reported to have changed his commander in Tunisia. Australian newspapers urged Prime Minister Curtin to visit President Roosevelt to ask more aid in Southwest Pacific. The President addresses Congress on State of the Nation at 12.30 p.m. today. Now, here is Jay Sims. Before going to Australia, here are the latest reports of unrest inside Europe. Swiss sources report the Nazi puppet government of Romania has quelled an incipient revolt by the Iron Guard. The coup was reported scheduled for the Christmas holidays, but the police nipped it with 80 executions and 4,000 separate arrests. The Budapest correspondent of a Swiss newspaper reports that the Romanian Iron Guard leader, Horia Sima, was arrested in Italy while en route from Germany to lead the revolt. The arrests are said to include Julius Manu, ex-premier of Romania. There are reports of unrest in other parts of Europe. The Russian news agency TASS reports from Switzerland that martial law has been proclaimed in the Italian cities of Turin and Naples. A United Press dispatch from Ankara, the capital of neutral Turkey, reports that a quarter of a million people are starving on the islands off Greece. A report from Istanbul says that the Gestapo is increasingly active in the Greek islands and the Aegean and Mediterranean. And now we take you to Australia, William J. Dunn reporting. Resistant agitation is flowing throughout Australia for Prime Minister John Curtin to visit Washington in the immediate future and, in person, present his reasons for urging more important aid for this particular theater of the World War. The idea had its inception in a single newspaper a few days after Mr. Curtin first voiced his plea for more assistance, and in the past 48 hours has grown to the point... We 
regret that our reception from Australia has been interrupted. We return you to CBS in New York. We take you now to Washington. John Purcell reporting. Shortly after noon today, at 12.30 Eastern War Time, to be exact, President Roosevelt will deliver his annual State of the Union message to Congress. It will be carried over all networks. This probably will be one of the most important addresses the President will ever make. To observers here in Washington, it will present an opportunity to gauge congressional sentiment on administration policies. Of course, no one outside of the President and a few White House intimates know at this time what Mr. Roosevelt is going to say. But there is well-founded reason to believe that he will talk, for one thing, about an expanded Social Security program. Just how far he will go is a matter of speculation. But it will be interesting, in view of the fact that Republicans are now a potent factor, to see how they take any proposals regarding further social legislation. One gathers the impression here that before long, the White House and Congress will be down on the mat. This Congress is no rubber stamp. It's determined to have its say. And many members have come to town with large chips on their shoulders. There are many who feel that Congress has played the role of the whipping boy too long, that the administration has been a little too arrogant in skirting legislative corners for continuation of its policies. They resent the fact, for instance, that despite congressional denial, the president, by executive decree, has placed a $25,000 limit on all salaries. This is John Purcell in Washington, returning you to CBS in New York. That was the news from our national capital. And now for the news on the fighting fronts of Russia, we take you to CBS Moscow, Bill Lowndes reporting. continues to advance on its four main fighting tracks. However, there has been no fresh news from the battle lines since last night's communique announced the capture of nine inhabited points in the Middle Don sector, 15 points in the Caucasus, and further progress south and southwest of Stalingrad. The ring of steel around the trapped axis forces between the Don and the Volga continues to tighten. Biggest news in the Moscow newspaper this morning are details of the new shoulder epaulets, which has been introduced throughout the Red Army. In the past, the shoulders of the lowest wrecking private as well as the highest general have been as bare as the shoulders of the ordinary American business suit. The officers have been designated by bars and stars on the collars of the simple tunics worn by all ranks. Introduction of the new estimate, however, adds a spot of color to the bell copy of all Soviet uniforms. For the field uniforms, the Soviet command is very sensibly ordered that gold braid be discarded in the epaulets and copy take its place. However, the dress insignia is a different matter. Privates will wear colored epaulets according to their unit. Commanders and generals will host of lashings of gold braid. This move is apparently the final step in restoring Soviet military organization to the traditional organization of an army. This evolution started several years ago when the saluting of officers was reintroduced. Then, several weeks ago, the Red Army's political commissars were given full military status as assistant commanders for political work, which means they must be fighting men with the additional duties of keeping up morale. The Army newspaper Red Star hails the adoption of the new epaulets as extremely important in the life of the Army. In other words, the Soviet High Command has now fully recognized the premise 
which has long been in operation in the United States Army. This summit, which American officers love to repeat, is what the good soldier believes he is the best darn soldier in the best darn company and the best darn division in the best darn army in the world. When the ordinary Russian private puts on his new epaulet, he can remember his army's achievements over the past six weeks and has good ground for his own personal belief in this American slogan. And this is Bill Downs returning you now to CBS in New York. That was the news from Russia. Now back across the Atlantic to CBS London, Paul Manning reporting. The German armistice commission to Algiers, who were captured when American and British troops invaded North Africa, are now here in Britain. They are prisoners of war in a camp on the outskirts of a small English village. It is a camp surrounded by wire and patrolled constantly by armed soldiers. There are 10-foot platforms overlooking the whole encampment, and in these, more armed men guard the great number of German prisoners below. Sir James Gray, Minister of War, who stopped Army discussion of the Beveridge report until Parliament could debate its merits, will probably be rebuked when Parliament reconvenes next week. Several members have said they would question the Minister of War about his decision. If answers are unsatisfactory, they will then move for a full debate in the House. The new British 2,000-pound parachute bomb, which has been used with such scattering effect upon Cologne, Rostock, Duisburg, and targets along the Ruhr, was taken off the secret list this morning by the Air Ministry. It has the appearance of a thick, sawed-off telephone pole. Forward in blunt, no guiding pin. When released from the bomb bay of an airplane, a small parachute blossoms out and acts as a brake on downward speed, thus guaranteeing maximum blast upon impact. London naval experts say the U-boat is Britain's greatest peril this winter of 1943. The Prime Minister has said that Germany is building more submarines than we can think. And the London Daily Mail emphatically says the threat is increasing, not diminishing. For the U-boat is the reason why farmers here must plow up a million more acres of land this year, and why 500,000 people who could be used in war factories will be needed to harvest. The U-boat is Germany's number one priority, and they are being assembled in at least 16 different ports from Sondheim to Toulon. The Germans use the American shipbuilding method of prefabricating inland and then shipping to ports where German workmen and skilled labor from occupied countries then do the assembly. The London Daily Express announces this morning that 12 million tons more of British shipping will be needed soon in order to balance British losses and to make ready a new spring and summer offensive. There is an interesting sidelight to this battle of the Atlantic. British seamen at Liverpool are complaining very bitterly over the freedom of movement allowed the cargo ships from South Ireland. They say the majority of the crews are not anti-British, yet a few men have no difficulty getting the information Germany wants. As neutrals, they are not subject to 100% security control, and upon their return to Dublin, ship movement data can then be quickly wireless from Dublin legation to Berlin. And now to CBS and Algiers, for the report of Charles Collingwood. This is Charles Collingwood in North Africa. The news from the northern part of the Tunisian front is not so good this morning. You remember that it was announced yesterday that a British infantry brigade, along with British commandos and American rangers, had captured two important hills guarding the approach to Matur and Deserta. Well, this morning we find out that they have lost these two hills 
about 15 miles west of Mature. German counterattacks yesterday morning took the topmost sights away from the Allied defenders. Fighting went on all day, but by last night, the position was decided to be untenable, and the brigade and the commandos and the rangers went back to the position from which they had started. There is no news of any other ground fighting, but American bombers attacked German positions around the city of Kairouan for the fourth day running. The German military camp south of the town was bombed twice, and the railroad yards were heavily attacked. The Royal Air Force devoted most of its time yesterday to protecting the troops in the fighting west of Mature. During the day, the RAF shot down three enemy planes and lost two of their own. General Zero is taking his responsibilities as High Commissioner of French Africa seriously. He's been in office less than two weeks, but he has already traveled thousands of miles over the vast empire he is charged with. At the moment, he is in Dakar, conferring with Governor General Boisson. All of the stories from Dakar speak of the enthusiastic way in which Giro was hated by the Arabs and French of West Africa. There's no doubt that Giro is personally very popular, which is one of the things which gives hope of solving the present political dilemma. Another factor in that dilemma, the position of General de Gaulle, is as mysterious as ever. In spite of the expressed desire of General Giro and to some of the men around him to effect a reconciliation with de Gaulle, the expected agreement between the two French leaders has so far not materialized. De Gaulle's offer to meet Giro somewhere on French soil does not seem to have carried the matter any farther. This is Charles Collingwood, returning you to CBS in New York. In the Southwest Pacific, Allied bombers have carried out further raids against the Japanese airdromes at Gazmaha on the south coast of New Britain Island and Lai, 160 miles up the New Guinea coast from Buna. Other Allied planes attacked the enemy forces at Sanananda Point, the last remaining Japanese defense pocket in northeastern New Guinea. Meantime, our artillery is pounding Jap positions there. And that's the latest news from General MacArthur's headquarters. To round out the news picture, there are these developments. The Chongqing radio, heard by the FCC, broadcast this morning the Japanese troops pushing northward in Nanhuai province of northeastern China have advanced to a point south of Tungcheng. Says the communique, our forces are trying to check their advance. The fighting is fierce. At the same time, the Chongqing radio reports the Chinese forces are advancing in Honan province, whose eastern boundary joins the coastal province of Anhui. The broadcast said the Chinese have penetrated the Jap-held city of Changyang,